Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 13. 13th chapter of Matthew. We'll get there in a moment. This is week six of seven in this sermon series called Paradox. The Webster's Dictionary defines paradox as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when explained or investigated uh, proves to hold fast or to be true. I don't think I can repeat that again. But that's sort of a way of like, um, it's a fancy Webster's Dictionary definition, but think of it almost like this. When my kids were little, they would sometimes play a game called the opposite game. You ever do that? Where the kids, of course, they were the ones that always instigated it, but they would say, hey, today's opposite day. And then the key of the game is to wait a few minutes and then start talking and saying things. And my kids would say things like, you know, Robert, that shirt is ugly. Uh, I hate you. I'm going to run away from home. And then I would be like, oh, yeah, opposite day. So they like my shirt. They love me. And they're going to hang around the house for 18 to 30 years because we're playing opposite day, right? Well, Jesus, um, in some ways, wasn't trying to be pithy. He wasn't trying to be trendy or cool or just go against the grain to go against the grain. He's actually saying there's a different way to live. In fact, some of you know Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. It says to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And when we do that, we can get in trouble. Follow your heart, follow your heart. But Jeremiah would tell us in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. So be careful if you lean on your own understanding. Be careful if you follow your own heart. Proverbs again would say that uh, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. And so there's this paradox that Jesus invites us into to get us to think That, hey, just because the world tells us this, just because it seems to be the way, it's not necessarily the way. It needs to be investigated. And so Jesus explains the right way. He he teaches us many paradoxes that we are wise to follow. Our lives are better if we follow after them. We've looked at how we reign by serving. We conquer by yielding. We live by dying. We gain by giving. Last week, we looked at how we're set free by letting go. The way of Jesus is right. When you think it's good to, to hold on to a grudge, to harbor that, to exact revenge, to uh, hate someone, Jesus says it's far better to bless them. Even those who personally you. It's so far better to not be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. That's the better way. And any person, any human that follows Jesus knows that it's just a better way to live. Today we're going to look at Matthew 13 and our paradox. Uh, Daniel tipped our hand on it. Our paradox has to do with small and big. The world tells us over and over again, particularly in the American culture we live, that mega is good. We have mega malls and mega drinks that are three times the size of the human bladder. We have mega churches and mega this and mega that. And it's tempting for us to believe that if it's big, fast, and flashy, that it's, it's right. And the paradox is that more times than not, God's working in the small. Y'all know I worked at a mega church, a a church that I love. I I hold it in high regard and have many dear friends there. But people who work in a mega church uh, who have a heartbeat for people can tell you that it's not in the mega. Those churches can only be strong and healthy if they're small. If people connect in discipleship relationships and mentoring and get in circles and out of rows. And so there's something powerful. Kingdom work, y'all. Kingdom work is more often seen in the small. Matthew chapter 13. Here's our paradox Embrace it, resist it, whatever you're going to do. Matthew 13, 31, 32, 33. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. 
It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. We'll stop there. Just 32. Sorry. Right there. Let's stop here. And Jesus is making a reference here in Matthew. Uh, earlier, Matthew 5, Jesus uh, is saying that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill them. In Ezekiel chapter 17 and verse 23, if you're note-taking, you'll see that Jesus is hearkening back to Ezekiel when he talks about seeds that are planted and trees that are grown and trees that develop branches and branches where people find shelter, sanctuary, and rest. They come and nest. And the metaphor is a good one, one that we ought to embrace today. Our lives don't exist for ourselves. And where we are today is not where we'll be tomorrow. And if you'll let God grow you, you'll be something for someone to find rest in. Some, some people will seek you out. Some people will come to you when they're weary and wilted and worn out. And they'll look to you for advice and wisdom. They'll find strength and nourishment from you because you're getting it from Christ. You have a spiritual center. And that's this thing that Jesus is hearkening that he's hearkening back to. Now, in the Bible, just like in life, there's a value to small things. The Bible teaches us uh, several places. I'm going to quote a couple of them, but it teaches us several places that small is powerful and that small is wise. In James 3, it talks about the power of the tongue. Ever been hurt? Ever been stung by criticism? Ever been torn up by gossip and hatred? Ever exaggerated or criticized or complained or been around someone who's exaggerating, criticizing, or complaining? The tongue is a powerful thing, super powerful. And James says that. It says, in fact, it says that it's like a, just as a, a large ship is driven by a strong wind that's steered by a small rudder, so is the tongue. Uh, a great forest that catches on fire, it starts with a small flame. A big giant horse is turned and steered by a small bit. So you see a small rudder, a small spark, a small bit controls a large ship at sea driven by strong winds, a great forest fire that's ravaging the countryside, and a beautiful horse that's running strong. A small thing can be powerful, a small thing can be wise. In Proverbs chapter 30, the the wisdom literature that waxes about, about wisdom and about how we can go to nature and we can see in small things. And it mentions the, the ant, the hyrax, whatever that is, the locust and the lizard. That there are four small creatures that actually when you study them and what the Bible teaches long ago is borne out by science and biology today. When you microscopically look at these small creatures, you see that they're really wise in how they live their lives, how they uh, choreograph things and orchestrate things and live together and forage and, 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 and sustain themselves. That there's amazing wisdom there. So there's power in small strength. There's wisdom in small. Jesus himself would say, small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. There's a power in small that you and I, that we would do well not to reject. What about the fast? What about the immediate? What about the flashy? What about the big? What about the mega? Small, steady, hidden, gradual. There's where the power is. There's where the kingdom is. 
Now, if you'll back up a moment in this passage, Matthew 13, 31 and 32, he's telling these parables, and it says here in this first part of it that, uh, that he, he tells them another parable. Jesus is telling parables. Some of you might know this. He's telling them what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is this. The kingdom of heaven is this. And here he... He's not so much telling us what the kingdom of heaven is like, or yeah, here he is telling us what it's like in terms of small, but right before that, the first parable he tells in Matthew 13, I'd love for you to read the whole chapter later so you can get it in context, but he says in the first part of this chapter, Matthew 13, he tells a parable about the seeds. What is the seed? The seed is where it begins. The seed is the word. James would later say in James 1.21 that we are to humbly receive the word, the seed of the word that's planted in our hearts. It's the seed. And then he says that another parable is about the weeds, what comes in and chokes out the work that God has done. We, We may not want to hear that, but we need to hear that. In fact, he would say that there's different soils and some falls on the rocky and some on the thorny and it, it can enter in and it can choke it out. The, the, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of other things can, can choke this seed out of our lives and we won't grow like God desires to grow us. And so here, he comes to this place and he's saying, here's what the kingdom is like. It is something very, very small. The starting point for it is something that is small. Small has power. We've looked at it briefly in the Bible, but you can see it in the world today. I made an observation a few years back. I'm, I'm one of those guys, I, I like to fly. I don't fly as much as some of you, but I've had the privilege in my years of being somewhat of a frequent flyer. I'm a frequent flyer without all the points. But I made an observation a couple of years back. I noticed that uh, something had changed about airplanes, particularly with the wings of airplanes. Anybody afraid to fly? You're a little nervous. I'm going to tell on Laura McAlpin. She flies a good bit, but when you're with Laura, uh, you have to hold Laura's hand before a flight. Isn't that, isn't that sweet? And we've been on a staff team flight before where uh, we were sitting together, but Laura was sitting with a stranger, and she asked the stranger to hold her hand. Isn't that sweet and creepy? Um, <laughs> But do you, do you pray before a flight? Do you think about, people say, hey, have a good flight, have a safe flight, as if you can do anything about it, right? But your, your hand, your life is in the hands of that pilot, that co-pilot, those mechanics. And I, I observed that wings on these commercial uh, airlines are, are different. And I noticed these little winglets, these little small things on the wings of planes. And I asked a pilot friend, he said, you know, Robert, you're right, they're actually called winglets. And they've been installed on uh, these older planes that are very active today with all the major airlines. And these winglets, uh, he told me, are very um, energy efficient. That they reduce drag and they increase lift. And I researched some with Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines, their team of aircraft mechanics claim that the winglets added to these older um, planes that are being used, that they actually save on fuel costs up to, you ready for this, $1 million per year per plane. Then not that boggle your mind? You're going to Google search me right now. You're going to fact check me. But that's the truth of the matter. These small things that were added to something big have huge results in energy efficiency and cost. I don't know if they passed that on to the consumer, but they're saving a lot of money because of the addition of something small. One time in my life, I remember I wanted to impress somebody, and I attended... Uh-oh, it broke... I attended, but I'm so mechanical I can fix it. I attended an orchestra in a big city. And there were 
hundred-something people probably in the orchestra. And you know there's a violin player and there's the French horn and there's the flute and the clarinet and the trumpet and the trombone and the cello. And there is a host of a percussionist in an orchestra. There's the conductor. And it's really a thing of beauty. I tried to act culture, cultured and refined when I went to this orchestra. And I just, in my mind, I find myself going to the dude who was wearing a tux standing in the back with a bow tie, and he was playing the triangle. That's what this guy would do. And I don't know a lot about music like some of you who are about to judge me, and some who did harshly after the 9.30. I don't know a lot about music, but I'm just thinking, I kind of went Will Ferrell, you know, on Saturday Night Live, like we need more cowbell. Like, if you're going to sit there, like we need more triangle. Like, if you're going to be up there wearing a tux and part of this... Like, are you a fraud? Like, who are you? And what, what's going on? Do they know you're here? And the guy just periodically just plays the triangle. By the way, I had it upside down in the first service. Lauren corrected me. But I, I learned about the triangle guy. I learned that this person is really important. He may not seem important to you and I. We may not understand musically why he's doing this, why he's standing in the back and playing a non-sexy instrument. Um, in such a minimal way. But what I've learned is that he's really important. He's important and there's pitch and there's tempo and there's timing and there's a, a meticulous ear that this person has to be trained in and he needs to hit this at just the right time to lead the rhythm section, the percussionist, and it affects the whole thing. You see, it's not important to you. I make fun of it. It doesn't seem important to me, but it's important. I don't matter, though. It's important to the composer. It's important to the conductor. It's important to the orchestra that there's the triangle man. Also learned that the guy in Miami makes $60,000 a year doing the triangle. Isn't that cool? So if you don't see me here one day, and you're in a big city, and I'm wearing a tux in the back, and I'm just doing this, you'll know the stress got to me, and I'm making about 60000 with a dental plan. But here's what I want to say to you this morning. By way of this visual aid, what I want to say to you is that it's easy for us to feel unimportant, to feel overlooked, to feel like we're not, since we're not the big guy on the stage or we're not the second fiddle, we think that we don't have much to bring. And can I tell you, in the economy of Jesus, in the way He's designed us, that is so erroneous and so, so wrong. In fact, I want to challenge you this morning to this. This very idea, you bring the triangle and God will bring the symphony. What you have is important and it matters. What you possess may not seem grand to you. But are you willing? Are you willing to play second fiddle as the saying goes? Are you willing to play the triangle? Are you willing to bring something that doesn't seem that important to you? But when you bring it to God, He can multiply it. And He can let it be a part of something way bigger than what you ever dreamed or imagined. Remember this story in John 6 about the loaves and the fishes? It says this. Notice the word we've highlighted. Here's a boy with five what? Small barley loaves and two what? Small fish. But how far will they go among so many. That's the heart of Jesus for us, is to take the person that seems unimportant and overlooked and undervalued, to take that person or to take the person whose gift 
seems to be that way. It just seems to be like the triangle. And when we give it to Him, whether it's a triangle, whether it's a gift, whether it's resources, whether it's time or energy, when we give Jesus possessions, when we give Him ourselves, He's the one who can multiply it. In fact, He can multiply it like nobody else. And so for the moments that we have together this morning, I want to challenge you in three areas where small can really become big. Where God can multiply the work in your life. I think it could affect our families, our workplaces, our neighborhood, our church, our community. Because remember the promise that Jesus made. Seeds go in the ground. The weeds can choke it out. But if it falls in the proper soil, if we're hearing the word and doing something about it and acting on it, then God will build into us and He'll allow our lives to bloom and to blossom, and others will be blessed by that. You know, He never blesses you without you being a blessing to others. You're, it's never the end game to just bless you. And so here are the three areas I want to challenge you. And the first is this, small acts of love. Who can you love? Who needs to know that they're loved? And, and what, need, what conversation needs to happen? A journal entry this several years back. If you can't do great things, Mother Teresa used to say, do little things with great love. Ever heard that? If you can't do them with great love, then do them with a little love. If you can't do them with a little love, do them anyway. Love grows when people serve. There are marriages starving now. There are parent-child relationships um, with great harm. Because... We're waiting on a feeling. We're waiting on somebody else to go first. I want to say this morning, with this parable of Jesus, that there are small acts that He can multiply and that He can use. Are you willing to go first? What small act of love are you willing to offer the world? I read a couple of years back about an a app, a new app. I actually downloaded the app. I signed up for it. I don't do that often. But it was, it's an app entitled Be My Eyes. Anybody heard of this? And there are, uh, somebody's nod their head. They were actually in the first service. Be My Eyes is this app that was the idea of one man. He had this idea to help blind people or visually impaired people to help them connect via video conferencing with people who could see well. So the idea is if someone is at home, they're blind or they don't see well, they don't have a family member or loved one there to care for them in that moment. They're going to the refrigerator looking for a carton of milk and they find the milk, but they don't know the date on the milk. They can use Be My Eye, the Be My Eyes app and they're connected with someone that can see and that can help them. If they're blind or colorblind, partially visually impaired, they can be uh, helped with a wardrobe, with picking out an outfit or something like that. Does this tie or scarf or shoes go with this? And two 200,000 plus people have signed up to be helped with the Be My Eyes app. Do you know how many phone calls I've gotten? How many people I've helped? Zero. But here's the thing. Over a million people have signed up to be the helpers, to be the eyes, to be the sight. Isn't that cool? Maybe it's just me. But I just think that's a cool thing to think. Someone came up with this idea and it's so small. It was one person with one idea but to help so many people and so many people in ways that I take for granted, ways that many of you take for granted, there are people being helped because of one idea, one small offering, one little bit of creativity, and so many people are being helped. 
Does that do your heart good? Does it do your heart good when there's so much hurt and so much selfishness? Or even with technology, so much that's directed toward distraction, entertainment, diversion, even evil. And here's a, here's a way, here's an app developed to help so many people. What small act, what thing can you do that could be multiplied exponentially that God could use in the lives of other people? What I'm saying is dream with me, but be willing to start small. Don't think 100,000, 200,000, million. Don't, don't think that. Dream it maybe, but be willing to start small. What small act of love can you offer the world today? What idea is God giving you? Second thing, besides a small act of love, is a small act of change. Small acts of change. I read not long ago a book called Atomic Habits. Maybe some of you have heard of this, a New York Times bestseller. A lot of motivational gurus were talking about it, and I just picked it up and thought I would skim through it. And I found uh, the research so fascinating about human behavior. And we oftentimes get tripped up, you and I, we get tripped up by saying, oh, we're going to make major changes. You've heard this saying, haven't you? It's used motivationally in locker rooms and teams. Go big or go home. Ever used that? Ever said that? To challenge someone, go big. Like someone says that to me, I'm ready. Like go big or go home. I don't want to go home. So I'm going to go big. But sometimes there's an anti-kingdom thought here. And what happens is, research bears this out, is that we're so big into the big changes to the major that we forget the minor and the moderate. And what really changes us, and this is true more times than not, those who study human behavior, what's better than go big or go home? Go small and go far. What habits... What area of change? The Bible has a Greek word, metanoia, it's repentance. It's our word, repentance, where we would change our mind. You would change your mind about something. God would convict you. He would whisper to you. He would speak to you. He would give you an urge, a prompting, a nudge, a correction, an inspiration. And you would say, this needs to change about my life. Your mind changes. And when your mind changes, something changes about the direction of your life. That's God's desire. It's what He wants to do in us But if we're just swinging for the fences all the time, we miss it. And I believe, I'm convinced, that there are minor and moderate changes that we can make. And small ones, when you go small with changes in your life, you're so much more likely to go far. True in working out. How many times have you signed up? You get a personal trainer. You go to the gym. And you go hard. You go so hard that you got to go home with something pulled or strained. You got lactic acid buildup. And you went so hard, you're go- you went home and you're staying home. That's just, that's just research. That's just our habits and our tendencies and behaviors when it comes to making changes and setting goals in our lives. Major, major, major. But what about minor? What about moderate? What about small? You can go so much smaller if you go if you're willing to go, you can go so much further if you go smaller. A guy named Andy Stanley pastors in Atlanta. And years ago, I heard him preach a sermon where he talked about how God uses five things to grow you. He uses practical teaching, providential relationships, private disciplines, personal ministry, and he uses pivotal circumstances. So practical teaching, that's when you hear the word and you do something about it. Jesus is big on that. Hearing the word and acting on what he said. What if I don't understand all? What if I don't know it all? Take the step. Jump in and see what God can do. Practical teaching. Also, private disciplines. 
we, across the board, this is where we're hurting in the church today. And it's, I'll own my part, but as leaders, we need to do better challenging and instructing our people who follow Jesus to live with private disciplines. I want to share with you, I did this at the earlier service, I want to share with you um, something God did in my life, a private discipline that's really helped me. And I'd like for you to uh, not see me as a guy that's bragging about something, but that you would even think about something in your life that you could do. Something you could do in a small way over time. I heard someone, and someone that mentored me, they challenged me. They knew that I wanted to get to know the Bible, that I wanted to follow its teachings. I would probably one day teach others about it. I was committed to ministry, but I was overwhelmed. The Bible seemed antiquated. It seemed dense. It seemed difficult. It was just overwhelming to me, all that is in there, and all that I don't understand. Now, I haven't come far. In fact, I don't even know why you're here today, why you ever come to Ponder Church, because I just don't really know much about the Bible. There's so much I just don't know, and I admit my ignorance. But at this time in my life, when I was a teenager, my mentor said, hey, Robert, let me give you an exercise. He called it repetitious reading. He said, start with Galatians, the book of Galatians. It's the first small letter in the New Testament. And just read the book of Galatians every day in the same study Bible. This is before we went to phones and tablets. But open up the study Bible that I see you with and, and read Galatians every day. Don't study it. Don't stop. Don't yellow, you know, highlight it, mark it up. Don't do anything but just read it. it it'll take about 20 minutes. And I did what he said. I thought it was a good idea. And every day, I would read the book of Galatians. 20, 25 minutes. And after a couple of weeks, I did it all, all those days of the month, the 30 days or whatever it was. But even after a couple of weeks, I knew everything that was in Galatians. I didn't understand it all, but I knew everything that was in Galatians. If you said, Robert, where does Paul talk about, I can't please Christ if I'm trying to please everybody else? Galatians 1.10. That's on the left-hand side of the page, the right column, halfway down. Where does Paul talk about, for I've been crucified with Christ. It's nevertheless not I that live, but Christ lives in me. That's on the, the right side of the page, left hand, all the way at the top. Robert, where does it talk about the fruit of the Spirit. That's Galatians 5. That's on the left side of the page. I could see it. Again, I didn't understand it all, but I, I learned Galatians. I became familiar with that book. And I went on the very next month to do Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, on and on and on. I'm not bragging. Hear me out. I just did something that everybody could do. And trust me, I'm no smarter than any of you. But I also, I don't want to lie to you, it wasn't like, oh, this changed my life. You know, like uh, every, all my problems melted away and life became great. None, none of that. I just did it and I did it and I did it day after day, week after week. Went to the next one, went to the next one, went to the next one. And what I've noticed is the cumulative effect of that. The Bible became interesting and fascinating, somewhat more understandable. And when you teach the Bible and study the Bible, you need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So it helps to know the Scripture. It helps to know the depth of the Bible as best you can and the width of the Bible, the breadth of it. And that repetition repetitious reading over time because a small habit I was able to go far with it and it really has changed my life it's a private discipline that I've observed over time and its effects came much later I wonder what small act what habit what change you could make in your life what's something you could do where God could work in you what private discipline Talk to somebody about it. Get help. Get a plan and act on it. Thirdly, besides a small act of love or small act of change, there's a small, or small acts of courage. Helen Keller said this. She said, life is a daring adventure or it's nothing at all. Man, I believe that. 
I believe that. When I was in the fifth grade, I got invited to my first birthday party where there were girls at the party. And it was really cool for me. My heart was kind of fluttering, going pitter-patter, because I had a, a crush on a little girl named Katrina. I really liked Katrina. And at that party, uh, the uh, party was hosted by a family with a very large home and a very large swimming pool that wasn't ready yet. They were constructing the pool, and it was just a big, giant hole in the ground. And there was a deck over that pool. And my friends, Jason Timms and Ronnie Walford, challenged me to jump off the deck into the pool without any water. And I I wanted to please them. I wanted to impress that girl. And I did it. I jumped off the deck into that pool. And I thought thought it was softer at the bottom. I thought I would land differently than I landed. And I, um, uh, I had a mild concussion. I knocked myself out. I landed so hard. And I appreciate you guys sharing in my pain. But man, I knocked myself out. And what's cool about that, though, I'll tell you, two weeks later, Katrina did a couple's all-skate with me at the roller, roller rink just down the street there. So I was able to bounce back, if you will. I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't bounce. I just knocked myself out. But later, I was able to bounce back. But you know, here's the thing. I look back on that event in my life and think, you know, there's something in me, and maybe some of you, to, maybe all of you to some extent, where we want to take a jump. We want to take a leap. We want to have fun. We want life to not be monotone and mundane. We want it to be an adventure. But in order for it to be an adventure, you have to jump into the unknown. But what if, as I grew and mature, what if I wasn't doing it for the crowd? What if I wasn't doing jumping into something stupid that would hurt me and embarrass me and my family? What if I, what if I was wise about it? But what if I was willing to still jump into the unknown and trust God? What small act of courage can you do? The world, listen, the world is looking for bold people. Not loud people, not obnoxious people, because there's a difference. But the world is looking for bold people. Romans 12, we talked about it with the college group this week. Romans chapter 12, don't be overcome with evil. That's kind of hard today, isn't it? Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. The world is crying out for people that will exercise love and change and courage and make it better because evil seems to be running rampant. And kingdom work, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's like a seed planted. God wants to grow you. He wants to grow you and I. What small acts can we do to see God grow us? Now, as we close, I want to share with you um, that Jesus is not just saying, this isn't a sermon about, well, small's better. That's what he said today, small's better. No, not necessarily what I said. Jesus isn't saying, hey, there's four people over there and there's 40, so four's better than 40. He's not saying the small neighborhood community church is better than the mega church. That's not what we're saying. That's not the point of this. The context is this. You see sort of an inverted pyramid. Yes, he's talking about small. And yes, uh, I spent the bulk of this sermon. I'm almost finished, but I spent the bulk of this sermon talking about the value of small. But small is in context with sowing. And sowing is in context with the kingdom. So stay with me. Engage all of your mental capacities for just a moment. And consider this passage that most of you have heard or heard a sermon about. Matthew 9. Then he said to his disciples... The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I've gotten so many fundraising letters with that verse on it. Like, let's go. We've written checks to friends with that verse on it. But let me ask you, 
is this verse universal? Is Jesus saying that the harvest is always plentiful? He's not, is he? The Germany during Hitler's age was different than the Germany of Martin Luther's age. When this sanctuary, beautiful place, was built in 1948, it was different than 2019. You agree with that? Is the harvest always plentiful? That's not a promise that Jesus makes, that it's always plentiful. In fact, Jesus said this, and I bet no one's heard a sermon on this. John chapter 4, verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. And listen to this, verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So stay with me for a second. When a farmer sees a field and it is ripe, what does he do? He harvests. Because there it is. But when a farmer sees a field and it is not ripe, what does he do? He sows. So I'm asking you this morning as we begin to close to see the difference between harvesting and sowing. You see, harvesting is about an end result. It's showing up when things are ready. But sowing is about preparing the way. Harvesting is about immediate results. The crop is ready, let's go get it. There it is. But sowing is about gradual change. Harvesting is what is visible, but sowing is what is hidden. This morning, I'm asking you, are you willing? Are you willing to sow? Are you willing to sow small seeds where God can change in your life. Just thinking about those things I mentioned earlier from another pastor, practical teaching and providential relationships and personal ministry and private disciplines and pivotal circumstances. What, what kind of uh, leverage could God do in your life if you sowed into those areas? How He grows us and how He changes is different than the flash of the world. Would you bow with me as we close, as Lauren and the team comes up. I want to ask some of you to think prayerfully, thoughtfully, before your God today. How have you devalued kingdom work in your own life? Maybe even the life of our church, in the life of another by wanting immediate results, by showing up, benefiting from someone else's labor. What about a different perspective? What about the heart, the art of a sower? What role does patience need to play in your life today? What role does hiddenness need to play? Are you willing to bring God the triangle? To trust Him for a symphony? Are you willing to bring small loaves and fishes? Are you willing to bring whatever small, seemingly too small in you to Him and let Him do a work? It's one of those paradoxes and don't let it trip you up. Don't 
don't miss the life that Jesus has for you by the fast and the flash and the big and the mega. Think of the kingdom work. And by the way, think of the glory that God gets when He's the one who multiplies. We plant and we water. Can I tell you, that's all you can do is plant and water. And God wants you to do that. But He is the one who causes growth. Let me pray over you now. Father, for someone hurting, for someone who's kicking against the grains of gradual and slow, for someone who wants major and mega right now, Jesus, I pray that kingdom living would enter into them, that your truth today would have an effect. Lord, I pray for us that we would grow, that we would be people who grow gradually over time in God-honoring ways, walking through the mess, the rockiness, the thorns, the weeds that so often choke work in our lives, your work in our lives. I pray that we'd work through it. Stay on the path and stay faithful. Lord, that we would be a tree. We would bloom and blossom and shelter. We'd be a people in a place where people could find rest. You're good to us, God. Work in our midst now in Jesus, in you. Amen. Would you stand, folks? And we'll have just a few minutes before we close this service. And this altar is open. We are here. I'll turn my microphone off. I'll, be, uh, I'll relish the opportunity to pray for anyone today. But anything in your life, an area of growth, an area of need, a praise, anything that you have, this front is open. And you come today. Let's all sing. Let's all lift our voices. And you come today if we can pray with you.